Hi everyone, this is Paul Durham, and welcome again to From the Market Square, presented by Sheehan Finney. Uh, on today's episode, I had a nice chat with Jen Kennedy. She is the co-founder and executive director of Blue Ocean Society for Marine Conservation. That is a nonprofit uh, based in Portsmouth, uh, and their mission is to protect marine life in the Gulf of Maine through research, education, and inspiring action. You may have been on a whale watch with uh, Blue Ocean Society, or maybe you've participated in one of their beach cleanups, Uh, but I uh, learned a lot about the organization that I didn't know, uh, in addition to uh, a lot about some of the uh, really cool uh, marine life that's right off uh, off our coastline. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and uh, here is Jen Kennedy. Hi, Jen, and thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it, this. Uh, I'm actually I'm really looking forward to this one um, because uh, I, I think the topic is, is is something I've had a a, a lifelong interest in, um, as a lot of as a lot of us folks probably on the seacoast have. But um, you are the you are the executive director and a co-founder um, of Blue Ocean Society. Uh, and for folks who don't know, could you just you know? Tell me a little bit about what the Blue Ocean Society is and and, and what it does, its mission, all that kind of great stuff. Yep. So Blue Ocean Society, actually, our official name is Blue Ocean Society for Marine Conservation, which is kind of a mouthful, but we've been around for about 20 years. We are officially founded in 2001, although we had actually been doing whale research in the area since the late 1990s. And uh, our mission is to protect marine life in the Gulf of Maine. And we do that through research, education, and inspiring action. So we have a number of programs that we do to accomplish our mission. We are still studying whales. Our primarily, primary uh, research platform is Whale Watch Boats. Uh, one of the boats we work with is Granite State Whale Watch in Rye, New Hampshire. And while we're out on the boats uh, teaching people about whales, we're also collecting some really important data on the behavior and distribution of the marine life that are off our coast. And then along with that, we want to take that information that we're learning out on the water and teach people about, you know, this fascinating wealth of marine life that we have out here in the Gulf of Maine. And then, you know, leading to hopefully how they can protect those animals. And so we do a lot of educational programs, both in school and virtual and programs for groups and a lot of beach cleanups. So going out on the coast, cleaning up the litter that we find, but also doing research, recording the um what we're finding when we're out at the beach cleanups and then using that information to help us prevent pollution in the future. Yeah. And, and so, so you said, uh, I mean, this has been, did you say 20, over 20 years, you've been, the organization has been around for 20 years or more now. Yep. Wow. So, yep. uh, it's been about 20 years. And actually I just, I also forgot to mention, we have our blue ocean discovery center, uh, which is down in Hampton beach where we do a lot of education down there. It's open every day during the summer. So at that time of year is very busy this year. It's just open by appointment and we do have a toddler program as well on Friday mornings. That's very cool. I want to, I definitely want to ask more about, ask more about that. Um, so, so how did you, how did you go about, um, you know, founding, you know, founding the organization. I, I, I read, you know, a little bit of your bio. So you're, you're originally from, from New York, right? Uh, is Albany, am I remembering that correctly? Or Albany? Uh, Rochester area. Rochester. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how did, so, so, you know, what, um, you know, what, what, what brought you here? What, you know, how did your, you know, interest in, in, you know, marine life, whales in particular, um, you know, how, just tell me a little bit about your, about your story and how that led to, uh, you know, getting involved. 
Sure. Um, well, I've always loved the water and being outside. I grew up right near uh, Lake Ontario, so I spent a lot of time in boats during the summer and things like that. Um, didn't realize at the time quite how lucky I was, um, but I was super lucky and um, always loved animals. I've always been like an animal person and um, just drawn to like any animal in the room if I'm somewhere. Um, and for some reason, I also had a particular interest in whales. So um, I remember getting like Greenpeace mailings and things like that and being really upset about what was going on with whales at the time and wanting to protect them. And uh, I went to Cornell University for my Bachelor of Science and studied natural resources. And um, at, uh, I wanted to do something with wildlife, most likely. I ended up um, spending my summer after my junior year up in the White Mountains, actually doing a forestry uh, study with a professor up there. But that was actually my first exposure to New Hampshire. And I just um, realized how beautiful it was up here. And, you know, if you're New York State is a beautiful place, like Finger Lakes region and um, like Ontario and everything, it's gorgeous. But um, you drive a little bit and you, you're still in New York State. And I was just astounded by the fact that within an hour, you could go to a big city, you could go to the mountains, you could go to the ocean. There were so many things you could do up here and just fascinated by New England. So um, after school, I um, worked, ended up working on a whale watch boat here uh, at the Alza Shoals Steamship Company, which had a whale watch at the time. And then after that, the um, following winter, I did a whale research internship in Gloucester at an organization that's not around anymore. But that's where I met our co-founder, Diana, <coughs> excuse me, who's from uh, Newcastle. And um, so we met there, we both finished the internship, and then we were both working on whale watch boats here in New Hampshire and um, studying the whales off our coast that nobody else was really studying. So there's a few research organizations in New England, but we were the only ones really going out on Jeffrey's Ledge, uh, which is about 20 miles offshore and collecting data out there. And um, we would share that data with other organizations and realized in most cases, they had such a backlog of their own work that they weren't really doing much with it. So being super energetic and naive in our 20s, we said, hey, maybe we should start our own research organization and um, you know, do our own data analysis and do some education. So we decided to uh, start a nonprofit and kind of got a board together and um, we're working on the data part, but then also realized that there was a pretty big hole to fill here in, in terms of marine education. Like there weren't a lot, of, a lot of organizations at the time that were doing stuff with marine mammals. Now the Seacoast Science Center is doing more and the UNH Marine Docents, but um, we thought there was some educational work that could be done. So we started doing um, educational programs in schools, primarily to outreach to students that were going out on whale watches uh, for field trips and things like that. And then we started doing beach cleanups and everything just kind of took off from there. So was it just just the two of you in the early going? I mean, did you have other, you know, did, did you you know, not, you know, small not for profit, how you started out. I mean, you know, it sounds like probably a lot of, a lot of legwork was all your own before you, before you sort of build and, and grew your network. Yep. Yeah. It was just the two of us. It was a small board. Um, and we said, Hey, we should get some interns to help us out. And so we had a small group of interns. Um, so our first intern group was in 2001. So um, that program has grown quite a bit as well since then. But um, I remember there was um, many beach cleanups where it was just Diana and I out there just doing beach cleanups by ourselves. And then um, other people started hearing about them. So we started doing more um, cleanups with schools and groups and getting more people. Uh, we obviously did a ton of cleanups until COVID started and um, we've scaled our beach cleanups down quite a bit, just in terms of group size and stuff like that for safety. But um, 
We had a first day beach cleanup in partnership with the state of New Hampshire at Hampton Beach on January 1st. And we had um, over three hours, 275 people came out and cleaned the beach, uh, which was really, really exciting because it was the first big beach cleanup we've had <laughs> in a very long time. So, um, so yeah, it, it's been really cool to see that program grow from just the two of us out there walking around by ourselves to, you know, more and more people, some people that would volunteer every month to do these cleanups with us. So is that in, in non-COVID times and hopefully, you know, we'll be on the other side of this or at least, you know, learning to live with it in some ways pretty soon. Is that, how, how frequent are, are the beach cleanups? Is that a monthly activity or? They're pretty frequent. Uh, so we have, we have group cleanups. So if a business or a scout troop or something wants to do a cleanup with us, um, we we're doing a lot of public cleanups before COVID and hopefully we'll resume those again soon. And we also have an adopt a beach program. So if groups are really into the program and doing cleanups, they can adopt a site. We give them all the supplies and then they do the cleanups and give us the results. So last year in New Hampshire, we're still tabulating all our, all our results, but um, just in New Hampshire, we did 193 cleanups with volunteers and wow. Some of those were, um, so almost every day, somebody's going out there and some were groups that we, you know, were on the ground coordinating and some were people that used, we have a digital cleanup kit and an app called Marine Debris Tracker um, that um, was developed by somebody else that our beach cleanup list is on. So people can download this app, select the Blue Ocean Society list and just go out and do a cleanup on their own. And then it all goes into our data set, which we also share with other agencies so they can learn about marine pollution and kind of compare it to what's going on in other places and around the world. That's, I mean, that's really interesting. So, you know, obviously yeah, I spend time on the beach, whether it's in the winter. Actually, I think I spend more time on the beach in the winter than the summer because it's less crowded and I like to like to walk on it. But you know, of course, there's, there's, you know, there's always something that's washing up. Um, you know, what kind of, you know, is part of the research. So, so, so people are monitoring what's washing ashore and what kind of debris is there. I mean, what sort of, I mean, what sort of things are you finding? I mean, obviously there's, there's the basic stuff we see every day, you know, driftwood and, and, you know, seaweed and maybe the remains of lobster traps or things like that. But what other, what other kinds of, of debris are, are sort of uh, coming up as part of these cleanups that you're discovering? Uh, there's all kinds of things. Cigarette butts is the number one thing we find worldwide. Um, probably if you put them all together, though, plastic pieces are what we're finding a lot of uh, pieces of plastic and foam. And um, it's, it's kind of funny because if people do a beach cleanup with us, like almost every time we do a beach cleanup, somebody, one of the volunteers will be like, Oh, it looks pretty clean out there. And then they'll come back with like 20 pounds of trash. And they're like, I had no idea. I am never going to look at the beach or the sidewalk the same way again, which is, you know, one of the things that we're hoping to achieve is just make people um, more aware of the issue. And then, you know, think about what the impacts are if we don't pick up that stuff. Uh, we picked up over 50,000 pieces of trash last year, and that's 50,000 pieces that didn't end up in the ocean or stay on the beach and, and didn't impact any wildlife or people. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, so, uh, again, over the course of, of 20 years of doing this, um, has the levels or the type of debris changed significantly? I mean, have you noticed, uh, can you, I'd be curious as to how it's, you know, over the past two decades uh, that it's changed. Yeah, we are. Uh, so we changed our data card in 2018. And that's when we really started looking at some of the little pieces and they immediately jumped up to the top 10. So I think there was a lot of little pieces of trash that we weren't counting. Um, we were picking them up and not counting them as um, specifically over the years. But um, I feel like it's definitely evolved from 
you know, we would go out and do beach cleanups, say at uh, Genesee Beach or Wallace Sands and regularly pick up 100 or 200 pounds of litter in an hour 20 years ago. And now it's more like maybe 10, 15, 20 pounds, unless there's been a lot of storm activity or something like that. So the, the weight and stuff is going down. So I think we've kind of cleaned up the accumulations from over time. And now it's just kind of the stuff that continually washes up. Um, and, you know, again, it's a lot of, a lot of things that are single use and could be easily prevented. A lot of things have reusable alternatives. So we're finding pieces of styrofoam, like from coffee cups or coolers or, um, possibly um, docks and things like that. There's a lot of pieces of plastic. We find a lot of those in some places, uh, like those drink box straw wrappers, like those plastic films uh, that and we're starting to look at the, these smaller plastics more. We've been working on a microplastic study with New Hampshire Sea Grant for the past several years. So we're sampling some of our local beaches just to see what kind of microplastics we're finding and hopefully um, figure out what the potential sources of those are so we can see if we can pre prevent them from washing up on our coast so much. That's it. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm surprised and encouraged, though, that at least in total, it seems like it's going down. Right. I mean, that's great news. Um, yep. I, th I thought you were going to tell me, no, it's, 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 it's much, worse, much <laughs> yeah. worse than that. <laughs> yeah. And in hindsight, we wish we had because we always counted like the number of volunteers and the pounds of trash, but not necessarily total the pieces. And we're like, we wish that we had uh, counted pieces from the very beginning, because that's a totally different picture. You know, sometimes people like, oh, we didn't pick up anything. We only picked up five pounds. We're like, yeah, but you picked up 500 pieces, which, you know, all could have been swallowed by a fish or a bird or something like that. So I think overall, yeah, the big stuff is going down. Maybe the total volume is going down. Um, we're just seeing, you know, the stuff that's broken up or, um, you know, stuff breaking up over time. Like if it ends up on the beach and doesn't get picked up, you know, you could pick up, they say, you know, one, one styrofoam cup. If you don't pick that up, it's going to be millions of pieces of styrofoam, you know, in a very short amount of time. So. Right. So, you know, obviously, I, 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 well, at least it maybe it should be apparent and obvious to, to anyone, you know, listening why styrofoam and plastic is, is not good for wildlife and having that stuff floating around out there um, in one way or another is, is, is not, um, you know, is, is not ideal for, for, you know, any habitat. Um, but, you know, so, but related to that, I mean, I, you know, you know, I've spent, time around the New Hampshire seacoast my entire life, really. And I've always sort of, you know, I've always kind of had an awareness that there's, you know, whales out there. So I've never really, you know, I've never gone on a watch myself. I've never actually, of course, seen any from the, you know, from just from the shore. But I, I'd be, you know, really curious and interested as to, you know, what really is off, you know, off the coast, whether it's right off the coast or getting a little bit further out into the, into the, you know, Gulf of Maine. I mean, what, what sort of things, what do we have out there? Um, I know just recently I was, you know, we, and we can, we, you know, the, Recently, meaning within the past couple of days, I think, you know, we had a bottlenose dolphin on, on mm -hmm. Wallace Sands, right? Which is, you know, sad, um, but still pretty extraordinary to, to see one up this way. So, you know, I'd love to hear more about what's actually, you know, what, what are some of the really, you know, great things that are out there, great animals that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we have a variety of whale species that um, we see fairly often, and they're not as hard to find as some people might think. Um, sometimes they're just within a couple miles off the coast. They've actually, over time... Uh, in the last few years, uh, been feeding closer and closer to shore. And we think it's because of menhaden or pogies, which are a small bait fish. Uh, the whales come up to the Gulf of Maine to feed uh, and during really the summer is their feeding season, but it really runs from about March or April through November or December. So while they're up here, the, their main activity is eating and usually small schooling fish or krill. 
And uh, so wherever the fish go, usually in the highest concentrations, that's where the whales are going to go. So there have been a few years when humpback whales have been feeding right off the coastline um, on these menhaden. But um, so when we go out whale watching, a lot of people are surprised to hear that you have a 99% sighting rate. So you're almost always going to see something. As uh, one of the most common species is a minke whale, which is considered a small whale, but they are about 20 feet long. So they're still a pretty good sized animal. Uh, humpback whales have been, at least in the few uh, last few years, we've been seeing them more. And again, it could be uh, due to the prey distribution. And they're pretty impressive. They're the ones that everybody wants to see because they're the ones that are most likely to reach or jump out of the water and lift their tail up when they dive down. Uh, one of my favorite species is the fin or finback whale. And they are um, this species that's about 70 to 80 feet long in some areas. Um, so about the length of two school buses, the second largest animal on the planet. And we have at least a few thousand swimming around out in the Gulf of Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been kind of interesting, one of the things I like about them is I don't care how many I see every time I see one, I'm just amazed at how big they are and how graceful they are given their size. Um, but we used to see them on about 80% of our trips and that's gone down in the last few years. And we're not sure why we've had this species shift where it seems to be more um, humpback whales, less fin whales. We're not sure less fin and minky whales. Um, we're not sure if those guys have moved to other areas or further offshore. We've also had an increase in some of the dolphin species. So um, we've seen more, there's a species called common dolphins, which are actually not that common around here, but we've been seeing them more regularly uh, in the last few years. So um, over the last 20, 25 years of our research, uh, we've definitely seen uh, some shifts in you know, major species that are out here. Um, it's, so there's a few whale species and um, dolphins and porpoises, also seals like gray seals and harbor seals. We also will sometimes see large fish like ocean sunfish or mola mola and basking sharks, which are pretty neat to see out in the water, blue sharks occasionally. So, and then of course there's don't want to forget the birds. There's a whole bunch of uh, seabirds out there, which are all, you know, pelagic birds that spend their whole lives almost on the water. And you wouldn't see them unless you went offshore on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, you know, you know, here, you know, a lot of us who live here on the seacoast, it's probably, it's maybe not that uncommon to come across seals, right? Because they, they, you know, seals will will kind of come, you know, in, 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 on and off offshore um, just as part of their, as their routine. Um, uh, but you know, like certainly, I, I I didn't have as much of an awareness that there were so many uh, dolphins and, and porpoises. Really, um, are they are they migratory as well? I mean, are they do, do they come up to feed and then and, and then and move on elsewhere, or are they sort of out there all the time, or or what, what are their patterns like? Yeah, uh, a lot we don't know still, which is really crazy because uh, whales have been studied pretty intensively here, especially in the summer uh, since the mid 1970s. And there's a lot we still don't know about them, like fin whales, for example, the second largest species on the planet. They don't seem to have any known breeding grounds that they go to in the wintertime. They've been seen a little bit further south and in the mid-Atlantic, but not a whole group of them somewhere. But while the humpback whales are definitely, you know, a lot of them are down in the Caribbean. The dolphins, we think um, they're kind of a more of an offshore species, so they probably don't go too far south past Long Island or so and um, tend to go um, offshore and then maybe come closer to shore in the summer. Yeah. Now, I I mean, imagine, you know, you you get out there so frequently, do you start to see the same animals or can you, I mean, can you, you know, over a period of time, I mean, do you, you know, are there ways that you can, you know, recognize, oh, we, you know, this particular whale or, or, um, I imagine they're not tagged, but maybe just 
from, you know, whatever scars or, or different things you might, you know, are you able to, I mean, are there ones that you see sort of repetitively from year to year? Yep. Um, yeah, so people always ask about tagging whales. It is possible to tag whales, but um, tags are super expensive. They're also mm -hmm. can be pretty invasive and actually um, cause harm to the whales in some cases. And then the ones um, that aren't basically attached with like a suction cup and they only last for a day or two. So it doesn't give you, you know, long-term information. So the most reliable way we found to learn a lot about whales is uh, photo identification research, which is basically pho photographing, like you said, scars or um, other natural markings and things like the shape of their dorsal fin um, with humpback whales uh, that when they dive down, uh, they have this marking on the underside of their tail that can range from all black to all white. And so as a whale dives, hopefully it lifts its tail up and then the researcher can take a picture and then we can match it to a catalog of known whales. So scientists have actually been um, studying and cataloging humpback whales in this area since the mid 1970s and giving them names to make it easier to remember. So there's thousands of humpback whales that have been named and uh, they do seem to have a preference for their feeding ground. So we do see whales that come back to our area year after year. Like there's one, for example, named Pinball who was born in 1989 and we see her almost every summer. She's got a lot of white on her tail with black balls that reminded her black spots reminded somebody of a pinballs. Um, she's had several calves, so we can start learning about, you know, what areas she likes to feed in and how often she gives birth and then maybe follow her calf later on through photographs. And um, they don't stay in our area, you know, all summer long. They do bounce around, so they might spend some time off of Cape Ann or Cape Cod come hang out in the Jeffrey's Ledge area, then maybe go up to Nova Scotia or Bar Harbor or further, further afar. But um, all the research organizations and whale watch companies talk to each other quite a bit. So a lot of times, or we follow each other on social media or whatever. So we can kind of stay in touch with the whales that, um, you know, we see down here and maybe get an idea of where they go after they leave here and when they might be on their way back. So, I mean, so this may be a, a silly question, but I mean, you know, given that they're um, highly intelligent, very intelligent, you know, very intelligent animals. Do you, do you have a sense that, you know, uh, like one that's a favorite because of, you know, personality or traits, you know, I, I you know, I know I've heard, I've, I've heard, you know, that, you know, sometimes if you, you know, observe, you know, whales and other you know, species like that over time, they'll display different, you know, different, some of them have different characteristics. I mean, do you have one that you, I'm sure you love them all. They're all amazing and extraordinary, but is there, you know, one one that stands out more than others that you're particularly glad to see? Oh, I, I mean, I, yeah, there's definitely a group of them, you know, like um, there's a whale named Owl and Pinball. Those are two whales. We have a whale adoption program. Those are two whales that people could adopt. So it's always cool when we see them because we know there's this whole group of people that are waiting to hear for news of their whale. And those are both whales that I've seen since I've been whale watching since the mid 1990s. So um, any of those ones that, um, you, you know, you know, on site and you've been watching for a long time. Um, Owl, unfortunately, has this giant scar on her back um, that came from a boat interaction a long time ago. And um, so she tends to get really close to boats. And um, it's like, oh, you didn't learn really so much from that, maybe. But um, I mean, it healed and she's fine. She's continued to, you know, have new calves and things like that. I guess she's probably one of my favorites because she's got a really cool tail and, um, you know, it's just always fun to watch. Right, right. And so, I mean, that's, you know, again, like I said, I, I, I could ask you questions all day about the, uh, about, <laughs> about the animals that are out there. But, you know, I imagine that a, a big part of what you do, you know, you, you start, you said at the top, you know, resonates with, with, with kids and, and children. And so, 
Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the Discovery Center that, that, that's open? I imagine, I imagine, obviously anyone can go there, but I would, I would imagine it's, it's of a particular appeal to you know, some of the kids who were around in the summer. Um, so I, um, I, I, I have to confess, I have not been there myself. So I'd just be curious to hear sort of how it got started and, and you know, what's there and, and sort of your plans for it and all that great stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we started doing a lot of beach cleanups in Hampton beach in 2004 and, um, and noticed obviously the beach is heavily impacted, especially during the summer, a lot of, you know, kind of transient, the, um, short-term visitors, uh, a lot of trash on the beach. It's also obviously one of the longest and widest beaches in New Hampshire. So there's a lot of places for, <laughs> for trash to end up. And, um, and then, uh, the state refurbished, um, down there, the stage and the build added the new buildings down there. And, um, we had had a really small education center down in Salisbury at time. Um, we had some donated space and we brought a touch tank in there and did some education, but uh, Salisbury wasn't really busy enough during the summer um, for us to keep that going. And we said, gosh, if we ever want to do this again, Hampton would be a great spot. And um, we had been doing cleanups with Kathy Silver, who's a, she's a now retired uh, Winnicott high school marine biology teacher. And so she was bringing her class to do cleanups. She's a, um, Grew up in Hampton Beach, you know, had the same experience with us thinking, oh, there's lots of trash on the beach. She also uh, would, you know, go down and walk through tide pools in the summer and see the kids. Um, as you can imagine, sometimes they take, you know, crabs out of the tide pool, put them in a bucket. She knows they're going back to a hotel room and that crab is probably not going to survive. So she would try to teach the kids about why it's important to put them back where they found them. And so we started talking at one point. And she's like, gosh, if you ever want to open an education center again, Hampton Beach would be a great spot. So the state... Um, you know, open those buildings. Long story short, we ended up being able to um, rent a space from the state there, which is right across from the Hampton Beach Casino Ballroom Complex, and it's right north of the Seashell Stage. Uh, it is a space that was originally designed for a bank that didn't end up moving in. So it's a very small space, um, but we fit a lot in there. <laughs> so we have um, touch tanks and you know other aquariums that people can view the marine life. We have a big whale exhibit. We have a big um, vertebrae actually from a uh, one of our favorite fin whales who unfortunately died a few years ago um, that's there so people can see how big those animals are and try to teach people a lot about, you know, why it's important to keep the beach clean. And um, so it's open every day during the summer. And last year uh, we started doing, um, instead of charging a flat admission fee, we did it by donation. So we just asked people to pay what they could. And uh, we had uh, kind of limited entry last summer due for COVID reasons and social distancing, but still saw about 18,000 people from uh, early June to early September. So that was really great to see that kind of come back in full force last year. And yeah, the kids love it, but, and it's really funny because sometimes we'll have like, um, you know, like an adult couple that walks by and be like, hey, you want to come in and see our center? And they'll be like, no, no, that's, that's just for kids. And we're like, no, just peek in. You don't even have to pay. Just peek in. And then they're in there for like 15 or 20 minutes. And, oh, can I touch a sea star? And, oh, I didn't know this about whales. And um, so it is really for everyone. It's really cool. Yeah, I found, you know, especially for, you know, maybe people who didn't grow up in tide pools or, or sort of, you know, on, on beaches, um, the whole concept of a touch tank is like, it's this very exotic sort of <laughs> activity. <Right. laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's, it, it, it's great. I mean, I, it, it sounds like, um, it's, it sounds like a great, a great resource and um, it, it, it's nice to have a sort of a permanent home, I imagine, right. To, to sort of have that, have that kind of activity. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I always, you know, anytime I, I talk to whether it's a you know not for profit or, or or anyone who's you know you know involved in trying to make the the you know the community uh, better in some way, um, I, you know, I like to ask what you know what kind of things can um, you know can we do just you know every day as as residents or visitors here on the seacoast, um, you know, to help preserve the you know pres- preserve the beaches and 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 keep the you know habitats safe for the, you know, for the marine life. I mean, some of it, I imagine, of course, is obvious, you know, don't throw your trash on the beach, pick up after yourself, things like that. Um, you know, is there anything else, you know, that we can, you know, here as residents that we can do to, to sort of help out and, and, and do our part? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a variety of things, of course, but um, you, you mentioned trash. And, and one thing really simple that people might not always think of is covering your trash can or your recycle bin, making sure things are secure when you put it out. Um, you know, a lot of times people have to put out their trash the night before. And if it's a windy day the next day before the uh, garbage truck gets there, there's stuff blowing everywhere. And especially if you're in a community like Portsmouth, which has this direct route to the ocean, uh, it just so frustrates me on garbage day to drive around and just see trash all over the street and can't, it's hard to do anything about it at that point. But if you just put the lid on your trash can, I'm don't understand why we don't have covered recycled bins, but <laughs> um, so that's one thing, I, you know, a big um thing that's the root of a lot of these problems is just kind of our consumption, which we hear about. And people have been talking a lot about during the pandemic. I mean, I think just something as simple as saying, if you're going to buy something, you know, is it something that you can borrow from somebody or maybe get to the thrift store? Do you have to buy it new? Do you really need it in the first place? You know, think about it. Is there a good kind of end life for it? Like, you know, is it something that can be recycled or, you know, lent away or, um, and not just landfilled because, you know, a lot of the problems, especially with the you know, trash, obviously is people either not putting their trash in the right place or having no place to put it. So, um, if we bought less, <laughs> there would be, you know, less plastic made and less trash to get rid of and less to try to recycle. So, you know, that, that's a big thing. And, and that, um, you know, that applies to whales and, and marine debris and all the programs that we work with. And if people do want to get involved, like I said, um, at the beginning, you can join us for a beach cleanup. We can schedule one for your group. We do a lot of that, or you can go out on your own. We have on our website, it's called a digital cleanup kit, and it shows you how to use the marine debris tracker app to record what you find. Of course, we love when people just go for a walk and pick up trash, but if you can take the extra step and just throw it in that app, that gives us a lot more information uh, to use to help prevent this trash in the future. We also have lots of volunteering opportunities as well. Lots of people that wish they had done marine biology a long time ago or um, just are interested in this topic. Um, there's lots of ways you can join us um, and you can find volunteering information on our website. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, that app I think is a great idea for anyone, you know, maybe if, you know, if people aren't they don't want to be part of a group or they, for whatever reason, for, you know, COVID or whatever else, and they just want to get out and they're going to walk on the beach anyway. Um, it sounds like a really, you know, it's something that's probably not too hard just to, you know, log what you would otherwise pick up and yeah. you know, share some of that data. Um, well, that's great. Well, la- last question I'm going to ask you, not to, not to, not to put you on, on, on the spot, but I always like to end with, with something, uh, not, you know, silly or fun, but, um, you know, of all the activities that you've been involved with over the past, you know, 20 years, um, is there, a, do you have a, a favorite moment or a particularly memorable moment that stands out that you, you know, look back, I, I, I ideally, I guess fondly, and it doesn't have to be fondly, but hopefully fun, <laughs> hopefully in a, look back in a, in a, in a good way on it uh, that you might share. 
Yeah. Um, if I can share two quick ones, it's really hard to pick favorites. I mean, I actually, even after all this time, I do love my job and I love the work that we do. And it's so, you know, I feel lucky every day to be able to do this kind of work and kind of feel like we're making a difference, but um, you know, like there's always a um, unique whale sightings and one in particular, I tell everybody about, I think it was in 2005. Uh, I was working on a whale watch boat out of Rye and we were heading out, I think past the Alza Shoals, pretty far away from where I thought the whales were going to be. And the captain calls me on the radio and says, hey, uh, somebody just called and said there's a beluga whale like five minutes away. Do you want to go see that? And I said, yeah, I want to see that. And um, it, at that time, there happened to be this solitary beluga whale that had wandered down from somewhere north and was making its way around the Gulf of Maine. So belugas don't belong here. They belong in icy, cold areas. And they're the white whales. If you don't know what a beluga is, you probably heard the baby beluga song. But um, yeah, just to see that, this bright white whale, um, which is something we never see. Um, and I think overall, what's been kind of an unexpected reward for me that I never would have thought of is just um, the uh, human connections we've made through this work. Um, obviously, like our hearts are with the wildlife, but um, you know, we've had, an, I remember um, I was at a talk and two volunteers happened to sit next to each other and um, and they were like, oh, do you want to go kayaking tomorrow? No, I think I'm going to go bike. Oh, I'll go biking with you. And they decided to do something together. And it turns out these volunteers had met through one of our programs. And then they had been hanging out since then outside of Blue Ocean and our work. And we've had so many connections like that um, to be able to facilitate like people having just that common interest in the ocean or the environment and, you know, coming together and then, um, making these friendships and kind of doing additional work, um, you know, that helps spread, spread the mission, you know, on their own um, has been really rewarding to see those things happen. And, you know, it's something we never would have thought, like we're starting this little organization, we're just going to go save the whales, but then to think about maybe having lasting impact on people as well has been um, pretty fun and exciting. Yeah, that's great. And I, well, and I, I can say after, after chatting with you and, and, and looking into it a bit more myself, I, I'm looking forward to getting involved in some way myself, even if it's, even if it's just using that tracker next time on the beach, I'm going to do my part. So, um, well, th well, thanks so much, Jen. This has been really fun. And, and uh, uh, like I said, I, I, for me, I, I, I love talking about the ocean. I think I was one of those uh, wannabe marine biologists back when I was, uh, <laughs> when I, certainly when I was a kid, I might, yeah. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of us who, that one, that one was on the radar for a while. Didn't always, uh, didn't always end up that way, but. Um, yeah, probably half of our volunteer applications start that way. It's, it's great. It's great that we yeah. can, you know, let people kind of fulfill some of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're doing, a, doing a great work and, and obviously, you know, been a, you know, small not-for-profit that's been around for over 20 years. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a great success story. So um, thank you. Thank you for your time. It's been great chatting with you and, uh, you know, look forward to maybe running into you on a whale watch one of these days. Sounds good. Hope to see you in person sometime soon. Thanks so much All for right. having me. Thanks. That's it for today's episode of From the Market Square. I'm Paul Durham, we're She and Finney, and if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a review, and sharing it with others who might enjoy it. Of course, no podcast produced by lawyers would be complete without a legal disclaimer. So here goes. Any views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Sheehan Finney and should not be construed as legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. This podcast is not intended to create, and your listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon anything expressed without seeking professional legal counsel. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I hope you'll join us again.